Here we go. Today is Sunday, March 26, 2017, and this is episode 187 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Callett. Happy Sunday to you, sir. Likewise. Hope, you, hope you've been well over the past two weeks. I know. I have. I've not been nearly as busy as you, but somewhat busy. Yeah, it's been... Uh, hmm. You know, our old our old CEO used to have that that saying about the one armed paper hanger, right? <laughs> Busy as a one armed paper hanger. That's that's how I've been feeling. So, apologies for missing last week, but um, sometimes you get called out to Las Vegas and you just gotta go. Not not to mention your uh, cable. Oh, issue. that's right. That's why I couldn't record on Sunday because right. uh, the, the 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 tiller found the cable. Yes. So sorry about that. Well, the Russians running the tiller, of course. Well. I mean, it goes without saying, right? <laughs> but we're back, and maybe we'll be back two weeks in a row. You never know. That's right. Anyway, um, just a reminder that the thoughts and opinions we express on this show are ours and do not represent those of our employers. Ever. Well, may- maybe well, now and then. Coincidentally only. Coincidentally. Any and all overlap is pure coincidence. Right. And we're not even going to guess which ones overlap. So, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, the, you know, I'm sure they would tell us if, if they didn't. Right. No, maybe. Well, I don't know. Anyway. Anyhow, so uh, thanks again for joining. And let's jump into some stories. So the first one we have tonight comes from ITWorld.com. And the title is Some HTTPS Inspection Tools Might Weaken Security. And I, I wanted to bring this one in because... We've talked about this several times, and I, you know, I, I still have my flame retardant underwear on from all the hate mail I was getting about, about uh, you know, talking about HTTPS inspection. So, so here we go. <laughs> um, yeah, you, you know, we we've talked a lot in the past about how problematic it is for IT shops now that everything's moving to HTTPS. You know, it's it's becoming increasingly difficult to run the kind of the old school tools like DLP and IPSs and stuff like that. And so you know, the, the vendors are trying to keep up by letting you man in the middle all of your HTTPS transactions. <clears throat> and so the news here is that US CERT put out a warning saying that, yeah, those tools are kind of crappy. Um, so well, they, yeah, they don't, yeah, go ahead. They don't do very well. Right? Yeah. And and in fact, I think the, the, the warning or the alert says that actually the, these tools can make it worse. They can, they can actually uh, uh, harm your security. And uh, for instance, they said that, um, well, actually, they, they, they had a couple of stats in here, which I thought were pretty interesting, based on Cloudflare's uh, you know, count of who is man in the middling. Well, they're saying 10% of their traffic is coming from men in the middle sessions, which is interesting. And, and then uh, they did some other stat. I'm not sure where this came from. 6% of e-commerce sites are, are being men in the middle. And, uh, and, and then they, they took a look at those that are being men in the middle, and they found that 32% of e-commerce and 54% of visitors to Cloudflare, Cloudflare uh, 
we're less secure because of the man in the middle, right? The, and, and what's happening is uh, the man in the middle proxies or, you know, whatever tools, toolings being used is, um, you know, it is downgrading the security of, of the tunnel, right? They're, they're using old encryption algorithms. They're not validating certificate chains and, and that sort of thing. Now, to be fair, the only way they could be using a weaker cipher and security algorithm is if the website itself also offers that as a negotiation. Don't even bring that up. I mean, <laughs> both sides have to, it takes two to tango, right? See, this is why boss gets grumpy at me in meetings, because I point out things like this. Yeah, takes two to tango. So so anyway, um, you know, the point, point is that, um, you know, Man in the middle right now is is pretty much a, a dumpster fire. Uh, they, well, well, what they said was that some products may inadvertently and and silently weaken expected security of your TLS tunnels. Yeah, I, I'm going to go with a lot of them. I'm going to go with. I think this is a lot of angst over a really minor issue. Yeah, maybe so. I mean, I, I, you know, one of the things that, that, that concerned me is, does it drive bad behavior? You know, if you, if you misconfigure this stuff and your users are constantly getting warnings or, or you know, but are they, I are don't, they constantly getting warnings? Maybe, I don't think so. Maybe. Uh, well, okay. It, let's, let's make some assumptions. You're in an enterprise environment and you're using your web proxy as a decryption point for your TLS traffic uh, so that you can expect it. So you're sending it to you know, TLP and TLS or, or whatnot. Depending on how you're configured, your certificate that you may be using may be the proxy certificate anyway. Yeah. Depending, there's a lot of different ways to configure this, but depending on how you have this configured, most users probably wouldn't see error messages or know about this or wouldn't, have any different user experience, most likely. Unless you have it misconfigured, right? Unless you have it misconfigured or people are very, very savvy around this stuff. I would say 80% of your average user would have no idea. Now, going to where I think you were going with that is, are we teaching less technical users to just click through any sort of message they get with a web browser? I think that's been the case for years. And I think People have learned a long time ago to just click past certificate validation issues, whether we liked it or not, especially internally at enterprises, because how often are we doing self-signed certs that aren't verified by anything? True. Yep. So uh, I will say this. I think that the value for an enterprise to inspect the traffic outweighs the risk of this problem right now. And perhaps this sort of thing will drive some pressure on some of the vendors to improve their their products. But I think as more and more of the world's moving to HTTPS, we're losing one of our critical control sets. And there's nothing magical about HTTPS that makes that website you're going to safe. It just makes it encrypted. So it could still be malicious. It could still be serving you malicious ads. It could still be, you know, whether or not they're iframes or redirects, it depends. There's still a lot of things that we do at the network level in general to protect our users from malicious websites. If we cannot inspect the HTTPS traffic in general, that means that we're pushing the entire defense down to the endpoint. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think some of the some of the complaints they have are, you know, and I, I know this isn't what it's not where you were going, right? But some of the some of the the security software they're talking about here are is endpoint, right? So so we've you know we know in the past we've talked about I don't even remember who the vendors were, you know they they have actual you know endpoint side software that's doing that man in the middle, right? Which is yeah, that's a whole different. Set the challenges, I think. But but you know, in in you know, kind of in line with the things we've been talking about over the past couple of weeks and months, I guess, um, you know, related to the um, uh, the 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 whole cloud, move to cloud. You know, right. that we talked about. You know, the, one of the points there is that you know you you really don't have that kind of central infrastructure anymore, and it's not practical to backhaul things, and so you are going to you kind of be forced to push that, that that's kind of stuff down to the endpoint. Yeah. That's an interesting point where, you know, you end up in a zero trust model or a, you don't have those central points of inspection anyway on the network when you move to that model. It's a compelling argument. Yeah. But you know, I, I think the net point is, which I, I, I mostly agree with uh, that we, we lose a lot of visibility, a lot of important visibility without that, without this capability. So, and and to be fair, we're only talking about enterprises inspecting traffic generated on enterprise-owned assets. We're yes. not talking about nation states intercepting private traffic. Yeah, we're not talking about your Comcast or your AT and T or your you know Telstra or whatever. Just enterprise. That's why they make VPNs and Tor. Anyway, moving on. Yeah. So moving on, uh, our next story comes from bleepingcomputer.com, and the title is. Former IT admin accused of leaving backdoor account, accessing it 700 plus times. Holy cow. Bad news bears on this one. Yeah. So, um, so the, the story here is that a, a guy named Michael Leeper allegedly, allegedly, because it's not been proven in a court yet, uh, when, when he worked with Columbia Sportswear, by the way, I really like their shirt. So, you know, if you want to be a sponsor, maybe, whatever. Wait, anyway. we're taking, we're suddenly taking sponsors. If they give me tea, if they give me shirts, I mean, what can I do? And they're not in the IT security world. What can so I do? Fine. Right. I mean, right. <laughs> anyway, I kid, I kid, I kid. Uh, so anyway, this guy, Michael Leeper worked, uh, in various positions for Columbia Sportswear uh, between 2000 and 2014, and, and apparently he shot up to the ranks and eventually was the Senior Director of Technology Infrastructure. And then in March of 2014, he, he jumped ship to become the CTO of Denali Advanced Integration, who was a supplier, and, and I'm sure probably found out about the job because of his relationship with the vendor. That's not an uncommon practice. However, what is uncommon, mostly, is that uh, before he left, he uh, allegedly um, in, created a bogus user account. That, you still work for a lawyer, don't you? <laughs> I do. I do. Yeah. yeah. I do. I can tell. Uh, so so he, he allegedly uh, created a VPN and VDI user ID for a uh, an employee who doesn't exist. And then uh, I apparently found a service account that was still hanging out from like seven years earlier for a, a no longer used uh, 
network monitoring tool and and then gave that that account some uh, you know extra permissions and had you know gave himself the ability to become that user and then uh, and then left the company and over the course of the next couple of years accessed it seven over 700 times and and the allegation is that he did so to get some uh, some competitive intelligence some kind of monitoring the the IT uh, you know, the IT purchasing decisions going on at Columbia and they they give one particular example where he uh, again allegedly uh, logged in to uh, to look at some email and found out that that Columbia was looking at purchasing some pure storage you know the the, the vendor pure storage and uh, that apparently Denali was not a vendor not a reseller at the time and I guess went and and fixed that based on on this intelligence and uh, it's not clear to me if they ended up doing any you know any business as a result of that uh, however, at some point in 2016, and uh, I guess they said summer 2016, Columbia was doing a mail server upgrade, and uh, I guess found it's not it's not entirely clear to me exactly what tipped them off because I don't think this this person had an account, an email account. But anyway, they found uh, they they found the evidence of this. Well, he was bopping around to different people's inboxes, though. Well, he yeah he was, but yeah. I you know the. I'm, so I'm, I'm guessing somehow they stumbled across some sort of log entry or indication that somebody was in there that shouldn't have been. Maybe so. Maybe so. It, it just, he must have maybe it, had an admin account on the Exchange server or something. That see that could be that could be they yeah. could have looked at like you know who has uh, admin rights. Yeah. And yeah, and saw that service account I, and started purely speculating, but it, that's my guess. Yeah, started following the the, the, the trail back. But anyway, yeah. um, so he got. He, um, you know, he ended up getting fired from Denali too. But interestingly, the reason he got fired for Den- from Denali was for using a personal laptop that that he uh, acquired while he was working for Columbia. It's, there's no allegation that it was. Um, well, I guess it said he was, he had used it for his work at Columbia, but I guess it's kind of like a, you know, a, a, an employee conduct. <laughs> You know. I'm sure they were looking for any way to fire him. Yeah, I, I, I think so. Yeah. I and, so. you know, to be fair, most of us are probably violating inadvertently some policy on a regular basis. Right. And, and yeah, just hope, hope you don't give him a reason to go look for it, right? <laughs> but this is a really tough one, right? I mean, this guy was fairly senior in the IT organization. He clearly had a lot of skill set and, and knew what he wanted to set up. And especially when you're not in a large, complex IT organization, I think this is a real threat, that this happens probably more often than we think, that somebody could hide a few things. And if you don't have really tight controls over terminations and account management, which a lot of companies don't, this is tough for, I think, a lot of organizations to catch right now. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, was, I was talking to, to Bob, since Bob and I are now back in contact. Well, that's good. And, and I was talking... I worry about him. Yeah, I was I was talking to him about this this particular story, and he was telling me about a, a story related to an, an incident he worked on. And in that particular case, uh, an employee had left and and had set up uh, the ability to remotely connect to a server, uh, in, in kind of deep inside the company's network, and 
and actually, you know, would over the course of several years would log in occasionally and and, and just like chat with his former coworkers who still work <laughs> at the company, and and apparently they didn't see anything wrong with that, and and so, um, you know, it, it it's it's all sorts of crazy, and I think this I think you're right. This kind of stuff probably does happen a whole lot more than we you know, we want to admit. Now, you know, I was thinking about about this, and you know, best practices would say that you really you know, two things should have, should have caught this, right? One is you should have some kind of process in place that would catch an, a user ID that doesn't actually belong to an employee at the company. Mm-hmm. And then, and so that would have caught the, the VPN and VDI account. And then the other one is you, know, you should have some kind of process to identify your know, monitoring process to identify when permissions are changed, you know, especially like administrator privileges are, are changed or added to an account. Now, I think the kind of wild card I, here is... I would f- add one more. Okay. One more, which is that you should have a regular recertification process. Every account must be, in essence, recertified by an appropriate manager. Yeah, yeah. That's what I... Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. That's right. You should you should be doing that periodically. That That check should be an ongoing process. Um, anyway, the, I think the wild card with this one is this guy may have been in a position to find a way to bypass that. Yeah, he was high enough, uh, apparently high enough off the food chain that even if they had those types of controls, he might have been able to find a way around it. Right. And uh, this is a great thought exercise for companies. If your senior IT person wanted to do this and then walk, how would you know? And what would you, you know, what would your response be? I mean, right. <laughs> do, do you have, do you have controls? You know, that, that I think that's the, um, and I, I see this a lot, right? That IT people tend to be given a lot more implicit trust than normal employees. Mm-hmm. And, and I, and that's, you know, as we see here, right, that, that can bite you in the butt. Yeah, Absolutely. But at some point, you have to trust somebody to get the job done. Oh, I, I, I don't disagree. And, you know, by the way, it doesn't seem like, you know, Columbia suffered irreparable harm. The, the reason this came to light is, is um, Columbia notified the FBI and then brought in some, uh, I'm guessing they probably brought in Mandy. At, <laughs> right. Uh, and, and for once that it wasn't North Korea. Or, or China, yeah. Right. right. You know what else I found interesting? There's no criminal charges yet. This is purely a civil, civil lawsuit. Yeah, they're, they're trying to re- they're trying to recover the the money they spent on investigating the incident. That's why it's and and which which also by the way the the, the one thing you know having worked in uh, a lot of companies and and you know in particular talking to Bob right it's very surprising that this became a thing right companies usually. Don't disclose this sort of thing. I mean, this is this is usually the kind that's of thing true. that's like swept under the rug. You don't you don't talk about this. So it's kind of interesting that we're seeing it. Anyway, yep. something to keep an eye on. Yep. So uh, moving on to our next story, and this one comes from SecurityWeek.com, and the title is "What CISOs Can Learn from ER Doctors." And uh, I. You know, when I when I first started reading it, I was thinking about like all the you know 
because I've watched like ER and Grey's Anatomy and stuff like that, and I was thinking like must be like romantic type stuff that they can learn, but but no, you you, you wait. You know what? Just go on. Yeah, I'm just yeah. gonna leave that one alone. I yeah. think. Yeah. But but no, that's not what they were talking about. So no, so, really. So apparently, doctors have uh, periodic what uh, what they call morbidity and mortality conferences. Yeah, they're fun. Let me tell you, they're good times. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah, the the punch is really good. I hear. Anyway, <laughs> um, the the point is that that these conferences are you know they're they're kind of peer reviewed and and you know, tightly run and the proceedings of them are, are, uh, held confidential under, under law. And so you know, the, the contents of them can't be subpoenaed and, and whatnot. So, you know, the, the point and of more this, importantly, they have built a culture internally, right. Of openness and, and sharing and not having politics come into the mix and being used against people. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And so, um, so, so point, the point of the story is information security would do very well to have this kind of a model, right? Because we have, well, and what we should, we should probably cover what they cover in these conferences. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, I mean, the, 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 the description is probably pretty self-explanatory, but, but yeah, the, okay. the, the whole point of them is, uh, <laughs> is to, to discuss the, the different circumstances around mistakes and, you know, lessons learned and whatnot uh, when treating patients that result in, in some kind of harm or, or death. So that, you know, and I, I, I somewhat liken this to, but, but not completely, somewhat liken this to the air, the airplane analogy, right? Where, you know, you, you try to learn, the, the industry tries to learn from previous mistakes, Right. And, and I read a great book, by the way, recently. It was called Black Box, Black Box Thinking. And they talk a lot about the, dif- the differentiation between airlines and medicine. And so it's, this is kind of interesting after having read that book because they really dog on medicine uh, huh. that, you know, that generally don't learn lessons very well. But anyway, this apparently is a venue where, where doctors get together. They share their collective experiences. They try to come up with, you know, new best practices to figure out how to how to avoid that that the kind of problems they saw in the past. And the idea is that in the security, the cybersecurity world, we would we would benefit pretty greatly from a similar kind of model. The problem is, you know, and 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 by the way, this is kind of why I started this stinking podcast in the first place. Because I, you know, we don't share, we don't talk about this, this kind of stuff enough. Um, you know, th- there is a, in, as I mentioned in the past story, right? There is a deep, deep sense of, of not wanting to share and air your dirty laundry in public, you know, and, and for, for a lot of different reasons, you know, whether it's brand reputation or, or perceived liability or, you know, lots of, lots and lots and lots of different reasons why companies don't want to share, you know, the, the lessons they've learned in, you know, in, in the, the incidents and what, whatnot that they've experienced. But, you know, that, that kind of, that's the same place that medicine started. 
and and so you know they kind of got past that and 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 you know so maybe you know for for the government people listening to the show maybe instead of like getting all hot and bothered about threat intelligence you know maybe this is something that you should start thinking about instead at least for a little while then you can get back to threat intelligence yeah it's interesting too because this sort of hinted at we shame companies that get breached you know, but if we take this into the physical world, we don't shame companies that have a robber break in and steal stuff. Correct. And it's interesting of what is due diligence. You know, if you look at a bank and a vault and somebody broke into the vault, you don't blame necessarily the bank. Now, if you look at a bank and they left the, the, the stacks of hundreds sitting on the counter and didn't lock the front door, then maybe you would care. But there's a there's a reasonable level of due care that is assumed around physical security and sort of accepted in the industry that people are sort of given a pass of, you did what is expected of you. The problem in the IT security world is it's changing so rapidly and it's evolving so quickly, we can't get enough of a stability in the market to figure that out, right. much less socialize it. Yep. Exactly. And and in situations where you want to share something about your company, the folks who are making the decision about you sharing or not sharing are not in IT security. Right? They no, are they're lawyers and communications people and marketing right. people and yep. And they see no positive whatsoever to airing your dirty laundry. Right. Just risk and downside. So InfoSec is, is still pretty far down the food chain in terms of, of decisioning around this in a, in a major enterprise, in a major corporation. Uh, so it's really going to be a tough one to overcome. And, you know, in theory, this is what conferences are supposed to be about and, and sharing this information. And, you know, we've get, we're getting more blue team focused conferences like the O'Reilly Conference in October uh, that they had their inaugural conference this last year. It's happening again this coming year. But I can't talk about stuff I've learned in my company. Neither can you. Right. I mean, I have amazing stories I'd love to tell about, uh, you know, tests that we did and weird combinations of things that nobody considered before and how they contributed to certain weird circumstances. And, you know, you should watch out for this. And But, you know, and at the end of the day, the folks who are external consultants, they're bound by confidentiality as well. So you either make it really vague or you wait until you've gone on to the next role and hopefully you still don't have some sort of confidential agreement or whatever. We're not, we're not sharing. Yeah. I think this is why the, the whole blue team concept at conferences is, is been so problematic, right? Because a lot of us are, I mean, between being crazy busy, you know, we're also, we also tend to be, you know, pretty tightly held by NDAs. Yeah. And, and, and that's just the way it is. I mean, it, it's a, it's a pervasive problem in the industry. And I, and I, I mean, I think I'm not knocking the whole concept. I think you do have to have some, you know, a, a pretty healthy amount of discretion, uh, but, but there does, you know, we're not going to, as an industry get better until we, you know, until we start collectively uh, analyzing and because you know, who is talking? Yeah. It's the, the bad guys. Well, the vendors no, and the, the bad vendors guys. and the bad guys. Yeah. The vendors are out there spreading their FUD about what their products do. Right. And those of us who are actually using it in the trenches aren't allowed to talk about it. Right. We can't talk about product X says that they, right. they caught so that. Then, but guess what? We got pwned by it. And 
Right. So then Gartner tries to distill it out or people like Gartner, but then that's fraught with all sorts of other issues. Right. Yeah, there's something broken here. Right. Right. Anyway, and you know, by the way, this, uh, you know, going, kind of going back to uh, my my request to the you know, to, to government people listening, you know, I, I, I realize there is an element of, um, you know, of the, inf- the the threat intelligence that I think overlaps with this, but but I think this is this takes it a little well, probably a lot farther, right? This is this is a very focused thing talking about. Uh, about failures and, and right. sharing lessons learned about failures and, and kind of incentivizing people to have those discussions in a, in a forum where they're not going to be penalized. I mean, not, look, you know, the, and by the way, you know, I, just because, you know, they, they, you know, the, this morbidity and mortality conferences is, is covered by legal privilege doesn't mean that, you know, a case of someone dying that gets discussed in, in there doesn't end up going to, to, to trial for a malpractice or, or whatever, right? I mean, that, the, the two are, are independent, and I think the same exists, the same concept holds, you know, in, in the security, IT security world. Just because you talk about it, it doesn't mean that you're going to, you get, you know, some kind of, uh, you're not going to be excused or pardoned for the actions, and, and I don't think we should be, but the point is you shouldn't, you know, the, the the discussions you have in those venues shouldn't be held against you. Right. So anyway, we'll see. I mean, in theory, some of the ISACs are supposed to be about that, but still, I think a lot of companies are very, very gun shy about sharing details. (laughs) Yes. Yes, they are. All right. So moving on to our next story and the, uh, this comes from CSO online and the title is inside the Russian hack of Yahoo, how they did it. I'm going to give you a one guess of how they did it. Um, zero days. Clearly. Fishing. <laughs> Spear fishing. Next story. No. Um. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, there's a couple of interesting things in here, though, um, that I thought. So, you know, the FBI, this is what the FBI is saying. So take take that appropriate but once they got in with 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 phishing they figured out how to make their own basically authentication cookies right well they found a tool they found a tool that did it yeah and what i thought really interesting about that is once they started doing that best i understand it it didn't matter at that point if the user changed their password which is the common advice we give everybody right it didn't matter you're right absolutely right and I'm also wondering if that would have bypassed two-factor authentication. I think so. Yeah, that's that's ugly. Yeah, I think so. So, so they, you know, the the, the as, as we talked about, you know, the the initial intrusion was done with a phishing email. Really, not clear what exactly happened then, but the next step was apparently they they installed a backdoor on a server, and then they started looking for for different tools. Uh, apparently, they found a user database. Which which had like name, email address, backup email address, and a, you know, a couple of other fields, and you know so so apparently this was a fairly uh, purposeful compromise, right? This was this was done you know with with some intention. 
where the, uh, allegedly the Russian government was looking to get access to some specific accounts, and they they list some of the the, the intended targets. There were, you know, media people and and opposition party people and, and whatnot. Um, and and I thought it was pretty interesting and, and a little clever that the way they targeted the people was by looking at the recovery email address. Right. So forgot who they were. So yeah, yeah, you know, like the the normal Yahoo address of you know. Jbell, you know, cow twenty seven brown two at yahoo dot com probably doesn't tell you a whole lot about who who I am unless you happen to know. But if you look at the you know at, at the recovery email address and you you can clearly see that I work for whatever company or whatever government agency, you know that's a you know, that's a much better, more effective way. And, and so they use that, and and apparently they generated sixty five hundred of these authentication cookies, which I guess, according to the article, <laughs> Yahoo had conveniently left a, a tool to create these on their server. Helpful. Thank you. Very helpful. Appreciate that. Very helpful. I mean, if that's what the article says, I don't know. If it's... I'm betting it was well documented too with, with excellent you know, documentation on how to use it. <laughs> Probably so. <laughs> Probably so. So anyway, uh, yes, sixty five hundred accounts were accessed. Um, yeah, I, I thought it was interesting given the swirling stories that had been going on. You know, in, in particular about the, the delays in reporting and whatnot. In this particular article, they say that that Yahoo approached the FBI back in two thousand fourteen, but at the time they had only they only thought twenty six accounts were involved, and it wasn't until much later, apparently. They realized that it was a you know a lot bigger, bigger deal, and and so there's there's kind of two and we talked about this last time a little bit. There was kind of two heads on the Hydra. One was they stole all of the data, like the you know the the user database, <laughs> apparently multiple times. Uh, but then but then there was also the you know, accessing of the email accounts of these sixty five hundred people. So. We haven't, and there's not been a lot of discussion about that second part yet. Right. Well, you know, more will come out, I think, as the as the proceedings go forward, if there are any proceedings. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think one of them was Canadian, so I'm going to guess that he he won't get uh, he won't be able to fight extradition for long. <laughs> so, you, you know, the takeaway I got from this, and, and that I see over and over and over again, is we're not going to stop fishing. I'm sorry, we're just not. It's going to happen. At some percentage level, it's going to be successful. I think the key is you've got to then contain. You've got to make it much harder for the bad guys to move off of that target that they got onto, that initial phishing infiltration point, Yes. making it much more difficult or much more noisy for them to go laterally or to escalate their privilege or that sort of thing. And I think that's where we really need to focus. And I don't think we're good at that as an industry. No, I agree. I agree, and we, you know, we, we, we have the, uh, you know, the end user awareness debate over and over and over again, and and you know, end user awareness is great, right? But if it takes only one person, you know, to fall for this, and by the way, apparently, you know, th- this this particular um, venture, as we'll call it, was, as we like to call it in the U.S., a public-private partnership because. You know, allegedly it was the the Russian government contracting with some um, you know, some private entity hackers uh, to do this, and so so the the, uh, the the initial compromise was actually done by 
you know, a, a commercial hacker, not a nation state person. So if you believe all this, yeah. Well, I mean, according to the article, but it's not hard to think that, you know, hey, a, look, we, we use contractors all the time. So do the Russians. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. It's all about, you know, about deals and pricing and, you know, you, gotta, you know, you don't want to have to pay benefits to your, you know, to your hackers, right? That's true. You have two people on, on staff. You got to start providing Putin care and that gets expensive. <laughs> oh my God. Putin care. Yep. You can go so many places with that too. I'm just going to walk away from that one. <laughs> Um, so it, it, you know, it's interesting. Uh, of, of, you know, once again, fishing is is the problem. And yeah, I I completely agree with you that we've got to we we really have to find a way to make it difficult. You know, to to you make it kind of at every step, right? To make it difficult to progress to the next step, and, and or at least and, noisy, so and, we can detect- and, right without being detected, right? Yeah. And then, and then actually have people who can watch it, you know, watch for that stuff without being deluged with crap, right? I mean, if right. it's, yeah, that's it's not helpful if you know you you know if you get a billion alerts a day, and well, that was one of the billion alerts. That's not helpful at all. I'm almost starting to wonder if we should be splitting up our response teams into subject matter expertise areas. You know, like this team, all they look for is user endpoint anomalous stuff. Well, I think that's, in some ways, that's what is emerging with the whole threat hunting, um, you know, concept yeah. that's that's coming up. You know, where, where you've got you've got some kind of security data science type people who are, you know, are constantly trying to find new ways of looking at the data and and whatnot to to you know, filter, the, filter those things out and, and down to something that's useful. So, yeah, I, I, I think that's a good isn't idea. That what a, isn't that what a sim supposed to do? Well, I think it's using the sim. Right, I know. In, I'm just being in snarky. In new and creative ways. <laughs> you know, because, you know, the, this, this, the sim canned reports aren't all that helpful a lot of times. No, I mean, it, again, it all comes down to knowing your environment well, baselining your environment well, knowing what's normal, what's anomalous. And that takes a lot of smart people and a lot of time. Yep. It's tough. All right. So moving on to our last story, which comes from Ars Technica, and the title is Microsoft Silence Over Unprecedented Patch Delay Doesn't Smell Right. So what does it smell like? Mm, it smells like musty old patches. <laughs> and what do musty old patches smell like? I don't know. All right. I don't know. Anyway, so on. so um yeah that you may or may not have heard that Microsoft canceled Patch Tuesday in February. You know, I, much to the dismay of many security departments and much to the extreme pleasure of probably many you know sysadmins. So <laughs> yeah, and and some bad guys who and some bad guys. Yeah, so this was um this was pretty controversial when it happened. Um Right before the you know right before the decision to cancel it for February, there was a Windows 10 flaw uh, that you know, was released publicly. Like the you know the exploit proof of concept was released into the wild, and then shortly after it, there were a, you know a couple of a couple of new ones. 
and uh, and Microsoft, for their part, ha- have really not said a lot about why they canceled it, and so that's kind of creating a lot of speculation about well, you know, what happened, and so there's discussion about maybe it was a problem with their build environment, or you know, I, my my hypothesis, and I don't have any good reason to back this up, is you know we've seen in the past some pretty poor quality at times uh, out of out of Microsoft patches in in, yeah. in, in recent years or you know, maybe in the past year even uh, and, and you know have, having the really re-release patches and whatnot and I'm kind of wondering if if um, you know they did somebody did some last minute testing and they found some serious problems and and so maybe you know maybe from that perspective maybe it was for the best that they did I, I you know yeah I- I, I can tell you, I'm not, I'm not happy about this, and I don't, I don't think they handled it well. I think waiting an entire month was probably not necessary needed. Uh, I think it, it put companies at undue risk since they did that, and them not explaining anything, I think, is probably disingenuous and not, not appropriate. I bet going to the cumulative roll-up patch is part of the problem because they couldn't yep. just pull one of the patches like they could in the past. Uh, but I, especially when there were known publicly released exploits, or at least proof of concept of, of known exploits, especially a couple that came out from Project Zero out of Google, they should have tried to get those corrected as soon as possible, not waited till the next Patch Tuesday, in my opinion. Yeah, and it kind of comes back to the thing we've talked about in the past, and I see this a lot with companies, and I'm going to say it again here, you know, Patch management is not the same as vulnerability management. Right. And and a lot of companies conflate the two, right? You know, we, we worry about, you know, a, a vulnerability is, is a vulnerability when there's a patch. Until then, it doesn't really exist. And, yeah. and so... I, so I, I feel like they were a slave to their own process here. And the process drove yeah. bad decision making. Yeah. Yep. But yeah, you're right. But and as that's... a consumer, we, you know, it's as a even as a consumer, our enterprises have to be cognizant that this kind of thing can happen, right? I mean, it, yeah. you know, that uh, fortunately I've I've not heard any, you know, horrible stories related to the zero day that was announced before, you know, b- b- before the, the the February patch Tuesday was canceled. But it's not hard to think that, you know, maybe there would, maybe there would be, you know. And and if that were the case, do you have do you have a plan to handle that? You know that that's, boy. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. It, well, and and this is also the other challenge is that you may be able to deal with it with other layers of controls at the network layer that you've got to be cognizant of and be flexible with and understand. And and so there's a lot of different departments that need to, or at least sub-departments of the IT security department that need to work together when these things happen. And I don't know that a lot of companies have the slack in their bandwidth to do that and deal with that, but that's what you need to do to manage threats like this and, and zero days in general. Right. Uh, you know, and, and we talk about how people don't burn zero days, but this is a little different. This is a publicly released, well-known proof of concept for a large operating system uh, that very quickly could have become weaponized. Right. 
You know, so this is a little different than a little-known, privately held O'Day that some Russian syndicates using. This is this is a different story, and I'm not faulting Project Zero, by the way. I, I think that it's for the best for them to do this sort of thing because then I might be able to take some sort of steps to defend myself while waiting for the vendor to get their act together. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it, 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 the way I would I would think about it. If you wanted to think about it, is you know what if what if shell shock, you know what what, what if something shell shock like were in that pot right it, it, where it, it's trivial to exploit, mm-hmm. right? It's it's commonly known, and Microsoft just canceled Patch Tuesday, right? And so you're not going to get a patch for another twenty eight days. So all that said, on top of it, with them never saying or explaining why or even – it felt like a slap in the face. Like our concerns just aren't of, of their – worthy of their commentary. Right. You will you will take the patches when we give them and you'll like it, commenter. <laughs> it, it's just not happy at all with how this went. I think there are many unhappy people. But, but yeah. it is what it is. Yeah, I, I guess the point is, you know, it's not just it's not just Microsoft that this could happen. No, with, you, no. And you've got to be, you know, I, I, if, especially if you have, you know, if you're an organization of any significant size, this is this is something that you really need to have a, a contingency plan around. Agreed. Absolutely. How are you going to deal with this? Because yeah. it's likely to happen again, or it happened with some other right. technology in your organization. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that is the uh, that's the show for this evening. I know it's so sad. It's just feels like it just started. So, <laughs> I do have one uh, shout out I want to make. Go ahead. So, in about a month, uh, April twenty third is the current release date. A new book's coming out called the Defensive Security Handbook. And although the name is very, very similar to our podcast, it's not something Jerry and I did, but it was done by friends of the show, Amanda Berlin and Lee uh, Brotherston. I'm sorry if I pronounced your name incorrectly. Uh, uh, coming out of O'Reilly. And I was very honored and fortunate to uh, write the forward for that book. So uh, they're not paying me to say this. They didn't ask me to say this, but I did want to kind of pimp the, pimp the book coming out. Available on Amazon and other fine booksellers everywhere. It's an awesome name for a book, too. It is. I, 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 that's a tremendous name. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so coming out in about a month, but available for pre-order. And uh, I had a chance to review it and read through it before I wrote the review, and it's pretty pretty cool. I'm digging it. Yeah, and if you have your uh, you know your your Safari Books Online subscription, you can actually uh, you can get the you can read the book now. No, I didn't even realize it's already out. Oh, yeah. Safari. Cool. Excellent. So it's it's pretty good. It's um, it's like a good primer for all sorts of different areas of 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 infosec and defensive security and uh, good overall coverage of most of the things you would care about if you're trying to do defensive security. Excellent. So yeah. Anyway, just my one little pimp for the show, and nobody's paying me to do that. So good deal. All right. Well, thanks for listening, and uh, thanks again to our Patreon donors. Appreciate your uh, your generosity. Absolutely. Thank you very much. And uh, you can find links to the stories we talked about tonight on our website at www.defensivesecurity.org. 
You can follow the show on Twitter at Defensive Sec, and you can follow Mr. Kellett on Twitter at Lurg, and me on Twitter at Malicious Link. And with that, we will talk again, I really hope, next week. Have a great week, everybody. See you soon. Bye-bye. See ya. Yeah.